0: My normal partner in all things strategery, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arleigh Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies is traveling, but he will report back on his travels uh, after Labor Day. But I'm pleased to have as our special guest and Shield of the Republic this week, Bill Crystal, the editor-at-large of The Bulwark. And the founding editor in chief of the late Weekly Standard, Bill. Welcome to Shield of the Republic.
1: Thanks, Eric. Good to be with you. Good to be pinching for Elliot, and uh, it's good to see you.
0: Well, it's 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 great to have you. Sort of as we kind of reach the you know end of the summer, and heading into a, a very complicated and busy fall, uh, particularly on on matters uh, affecting Ukraine, we will have a a supplemental vote on additional funds for Ukraine. The United States has provided almost $40 billion worth of aid. The Biden administration is proposing an additional 24 billion in aid to Ukraine. And uh, the, it'll be interesting to see how that supplemental goes. I mean, there were 70 Republicans who have voted to strike aid for Ukraine from the budget in the House of Representatives. There's been a lot of discussion about this, including during the recent uh, debate in Milwaukee among Republican presidential candidates. So, how do you see the the fight for the supplemental going, Bill? I mean, it it seems to me that it, this is going to be a bit of a Rorschach test for you know where people stand on conservative internationalism as a, a foreign policy among Republicans. Uh, but it's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty dicey situation. I mean, putting aside the question of whether we'll actually, you know, have a government shutdown or a budget or a continuing resolution, all of which would be problematic just on the Ukraine side.
1: I mean, as with all things congressional or many things congressional, it's uh, it gets complicated because there will be some up or down votes on aid to Ukraine, you know, uh, either to strike it from uh, a, a, a supplemental or from an overall uh CR, continuing resolution, which probably is how they end up, what they end up passing on September 30th, uh, that gets complicated because there are a million other issues in that CR that Republicans will or won't like, Biden spending and abortion provisions, you can imagine, and the government could get shut down on any of those, and the Ukraine aid is kind of sitting out there. It could go separately on a supplemental, but could also be, be wrapped up in one thing. So I guess I would step back a little from the minutiae of the congressional stuff, which I don't have a great handle on. And say this: I mean, and I'm very much of two minds. On the one hand, all things—if you had told me Trump runs on America First, Trump is president for four years, Trump is generally isolationist and doesn't care about enemies, and generally pro-Putin
0: and hostile to Ukraine,
1: and hostile to Ukraine, and is impeached over his behavior in Ukraine, not convicted, and then. January 6th happens, but Trump, amazingly and terribly, remains the leader of the Republican Party, and uh, now is way ahead in the congressional, in the in the primary ballots, uh, balloting, and like the likely nominee. In a certain way, uh, the party is is better from my point of view and i think yours on ukraine than one might have expected you know one might have just expected okay i guess the whole party is going to be you know america first you know uh, by uh, at this point and in fact it, the, either the the kind of old-fashioned strength of the mitch mcconnell uh mike mccall wing of the party the mccain romney bush wing turns out there are people who still believe that uh, or and or the drama of Ukraine, or I can put it that way, the kind of amazing character of what Putin has t- tried to do and has done, the brutality of it, the the uncomplicated good and evil question, frankly, all of that has cut the other way. And so I think we're in a very fluid situation. You know, I was thinking about this before getting on the air here or getting on the, on the audio here with you. Uh, and you know, for most of our adult lives, um, the foreign policy lines were pretty well drawn and, and there were divisions between the parties, of course. There were divisions within the parties, no question, but they were fairly predictable. I mean, from year to year, you said there's a wing of the Democrats that was McGovernite, there was a wing of the Democrats that was Scoop Jacksonite, and there was a in between group. And on the Republican side, there were a few people, and this is especially maybe more in the 90s and 2000s. Who were kind of hard-headed, national interests. We shouldn't get involved in the Balkans, and then people like us who thought we should. And, but you know, it was it was not it didn't change that much year You might say it wasn't that volatile. Uh, the balance of power was kind of fairly constant between these different wings. I do feel like now, in the last seven years, have been so unprecedented with Trump uh, that it's it's really hard to know where the momentum is. I mean, clearly on Ukraine, there was such a rallying to Ukraine after February. 24th of last year, that there was huge support even among Republican members. That's faded some, no question. Partly just war weariness, partly because the natural weight of the Trump wing of the party, so to speak, is, has, has just worn down some of the people who have started off at a good place. On the other hand, the polls still show the Republican electorate is kind of 50 50 ish, really. Republican House Conference is kind of 50 50 ish. Republican Senators, better. And so, I guess I'm mildly optimistic that after all the zigs and zags happen in September, the aid will be there for Ukraine. Then there'll be another vote probably in December if they go to an omnibus from the CR, if the CR only lasts for two or three months. I still think we'll be okay, but it's 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 worrisome. I think it's highly dependent on uh, events and progress in Ukraine will help, obviously, in the sense that it's not an endless war, somewhat contingent on the presidential race, Which, on the one hand, has been bad in the sense that Trump, DeSantis, and Ramaswamy—DeSantis being less bad than those other two, but not great—have what seventy-five percent of the Republican electorate at this point, and and the ones who were good in the debate the the other night, Christie, uh, Haley, and Pence of fifteen percent. So it's so, if in a way, given that it's that
0: lopsided, things on the hill are better than one might have expected, don't you think? I think that's fair, and the public opinion element of this is worth sort of pausing on for a second, which is, I think public opinion overall, considering that we're 18 months into this now almost has been relatively robust and, you know, just anecdotally, I know that uh, when, you know, when I drive down to our place, you know, on the Eastern shore, as you drive down and a lot of that's Trump country, right? It's rural Maryland and, you know, rural, you know, Eastern shore of Virginia you see a lot of Ukrainian flags hanging from doorways, which, you know, frankly, when I first saw them kind of gobsmacked me, I was like, are you kidding? I mean, where where did they even get these things? It's been relatively robust and pretty at the top line steady. But as you say, the kind of worrisome kind of troubling part has been pretty clear decline over time among Republicans to support. As you say, it's kind of split now, kind of nobody has a majority. It's really kind of split pluralities, you know, 48, 48, something like that, or low 40s maybe on each side, 10% who don't know. But it has declined. And and that is a bit worrisome because it looks like it could be normalizing a bit around the Trump, Ramaswamy sort of side of things. Now, you and our publisher, Sarah Longwell, have started an effort to bolster support for Ukraine in the public with Republicans for Ukraine. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What prompted you and how's it going and what are your plans? Happy
1: to. I would just add to what you were saying, though. It is is—it's so interesting. Because on the one hand when, you know, one looks at it in a sort of uh, level of congressional votes and, you know, we've got to hang on. We've got to get them another 24 billion at the level of you've spoken about this eloquently. We've done conversations on it and written about it for the bulwark. Um, I know if too I mean, on the other hand, this is a huge moment in a way. I mean, and, and you the whole Putin's invasion and what's happening in Ukraine could be a defining moment for the twenty-first century. I think when you go to Europe, they real they feel that way, and they have certainly changed a lot. And uh, we've all argued, is it really a Zeitenwenda in Germany or not? But I mean it it's big, I think, and it's big here. And incidentally the Democratic Party, which someone no talks about, has in fact changed, I think, a fair amount, partly because of Ukraine. I mean, if you had told us that they would be you know we have our quarrels with what they've done and they haven't quite been, they haven't been as uh they've been a little more cautious than we would recommend and so forth but on this and other things and tried as well they're even the fed spending where again they're not quite where we are uh, this is not the mcgovern democrats you know it doesn't feel like it so i think a lot is going on there's a lot of moving parts you know europe is a moving part the democratic party's moving part Republican parties moving embark. For now, in the short term, the key for for, for, me, for me, and this is why Sarah and I did this, is we've got to keep Republican support so the Ukrainians have a chance to win. I mean, that's really crucial. And then we can all have long discussions in a year about, you know, how to build on that victory and how to, how to form new alliances for the 21st century and so forth. Um, and so we've started an effort republicans for ukraine uh, the ad we did an ad that was shown during the debate we've done the usual medley of digital stuff and billboards and other ads on television stations and some key areas uh, just making but we've done it in the way that sarah has done the other efforts that uh, the republican accountability project and defending democracy together have been have done which is uh, republican voters speaking to their cell phones um and saying hey i'm a republican and i'm from you know Atlanta georgia or something and i'm we got to support ukraine and i don't, and and those we tested this way back in 2018 19 and really discovered that having regular people Saying what they truly believe, and these are real people, and you get their names, and they're putting themselves on the line. Some of their neighbors won't agree with them, and so forth. Um, and saying either I can't vote again for Trump for a second term, or saying we need to uphold the rule of law, or in this case, saying we need to stand with Ukraine, seems to have an effect. Now we don't have enough money to change. You know, you have to spend tens of billions of dollars, if not more, to change. You know, public sentiment appreciably, but you can bolster. Public sentiment when it's uncertain, you can bolster members of Congress. They see, uh, they go home, and there's an ad in their district, and someone from their district or their state is saying this. It makes them feel less lopsided. I mean, the one thing that happens is the people who go to the town halls are the Trump supporters. They are the America Firsters. They're not the you know people who are kind of traditional Republicans and think, yeah, we have to do the right thing here or there. Less so. This bolsters that side of the equation. So we're going to continue this effort. It'll be the usual mix of paid media and earned media and so forth. Um, we're going to focus on some key p- players here in September uh, who seem to be sort of, you know, swing players, you might say, on this on this issue and with advertising, with persuasion of other kinds. We're working with other groups, many of whom you know too, and other individuals to do stuff privately behind the scenes as well. You know, let's make sure that people, these Republican members of Congress respect, are going up and briefing them and talking to them. And they're, and so they can't just say, oh, this is the Biden administration, or this is a few never Trumpers. But in fact, there are plenty of people who serve in the Trump administration, and plenty of people who voted for twice for Trump, who believe you have to stick with Ukraine. And so getting those people in front of these Republican members, we're helping others do that behind the scenes. So I think it's very important. It's, as I say, this isn't, Republicans for Ukraine is not the place where we're going to have the you know the, the full board discussion of what the deep significance of this war is for for the next twenty years or the last twenty years, and and maybe, and all the lessons that have to be learned. But I am struck. But I will say this: since we've had our young guys there and the young men, and women at uh, Demand Democracy together, uh, helping with all these videos, and you know this takes a lot of time to recruit these people, get them comfortable with doing it, telling you know helping them a little bit if they need some technical assistance. It's not very hard. Getting their approval for the ad once it's done. These people are very sincere and very, it's very impressive how many people, that's sort of like you're, as you were saying, driving down to to your place there. I mean, it's, uh, these are, these are not, you know, professional foreign policy people. These are not people necessarily who served in NATO in 2017 and training Ukrainian troops. That's great too. And they are a couple like that, but mostly these are people who just are looking at this situation with Putin and Russia and Ukraine and saying, you cannot, we cannot let this stand. We cannot live in a world in which he gets away with the invasion and in which she gets away with the brutality and which we bug out of the largest war in Europe in 80 years and let the brutal, aggressive dictator win. I mean, that common sense attitude, uh, you know, which you could argue is a Cold War attitude and, and now a post-Cold War attitude, uh, I think it's I've been sort of heartened that it, it's out there and it's pretty strong among regular voters of both parties here in the U.S., even though it's a long way away, it's not like being. You and know, I discussed this. Like if you go to Central Europe, I mean, Ukraine is right there. Ukrainians are right there, but but it's 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 in people's minds that they do not want to live in a world in which, and they understand the implications for China and the implications for other dictators and other aggressors. So I, I've been somewhat heartened as we put this project together.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I th- I found the ads, you know, actually in many cases really quite moving, and. A great, from my point of view, antidote to uh, some of the effort on uh, the other side. I was thinking of Heritage, which has been putting money into ads saying, well, you know, Biden wants to send more money to Ukraine instead of sending it to Hawaii to deal with the wildfires, which, you know, the kind of we need to do nation building at home kind of stuff that you would have anticipated not coming from, you know, the center right uh you know a few years ago but but from the you know mcgovernite left as you were saying so at, at at a minimum i think it it does that who who do you see as the key players on the republican side i mean you mentioned mcconnell and uh jonathan martin had a big piece on mcconnell in the in politico about how senator mcconnell sees it as sort of his you know defining kind of maybe legacy effort at, you know as he is moving on in years to try and preserve conservative internationalism in the Republican Party, and he's trying to bring along a you know group of younger Republican senators, many of whom he took with him on you know to Munich uh, and then beyond on, in Codels. What other voices do you think are crucial? Obviously, you had the uh, pretty impassioned uh, comments by Nikki Haley during the debate, which I thought were great, and you had Pence and Chris Christie, both of whom have gone to Kiev, met with. President Zelensky, Uh, but who are the other key voices and, you know, and what voices would you like to see, you know, coming out there?
1: I mean, so to begin with the debate, since you mentioned it, yeah, I think I I struck in the debate on the one hand, you could say, as I said earlier, that 75% of the voters seem to be with the non-pro-Ukraine candidates. And I think that's true. Of course, Trump wasn't at the debate, so we didn't see him have to defend his position. Uh, but I did. Th- I thought the exchange between basically Ramaswamy I and mean, DeSantis pretty much stayed out of it, Ramaswamy on the one hand, and I guess all three of them, right, Pence, Haley, and Christie on the other, was good. I mean, that's to say, even if you aren't for Christie, Pence, and Haley, and most Republican voters at this point aren't, you had to sort of realize these were pretty serious people making pretty serious arguments. This was not the normal, you know, I'm positioning myself a little bit on one side or the other. Uh, and it wasn't. And they didn't. And they made it in a way that was neutral on Trump, you might say. It wasn't sort of, we need to repudiate Trump and Putin and therefore support Ukraine. It was just, look, this is a foreign policy challenge, a big one. And so a couple of them, you say, have been there, and, and others, I think, Haley knows a fair amount about it. She was your ambassador. And they were pretty, I thought, strong in making the case and why it's both the right thing to do and in our national interest. So I think a debate may have had a marginally good effect, actually, um, on the dynamic uh, so that's on the one hand. On the Hill, McConnell, Senator McConnell has been excellent and I think has done a very good job of keeping Senate Republicans solidly for it. I assume they'll get a pretty good vote in the Senate for uh, Ukraine aid as part of the package, maybe as part of a, of a CR that would begin in the Senate. Uh, it's going to be complicated because there will be people who want to vote against the CR on final passage, because they won't like the domestic spending, or they won't like this, or they want it to defund, you know, God knows, the uh, special counsel or something. But it's very important if there's a vote, to sh- clean vote on Ukraine aid, which there could be, right, to strike the Ukraine aid, let's say, from the back. Very important for McConnell, I think, to be able to show you know, 35 Republican senators standing with Ukraine. I think it would have some effect over in the House. So I think the Senate's worth focusing on. I sort of McConnell knows what he's doing, and probably doesn't need much help from us. But if uh, we were in touch with them, and if it turns out some senators could use some reinforcement in their states, that would be fine. In the House, you know, it's a little more complicated. The relevant committee chairs are good, so a lot of the Freedom Caucus and most aggressive Trumpy types are bad. Um, McCarthy has been straddling. I want to assume he doesn't. He wants to keep it going, but has doesn't want to endanger his own political future or. You know, cause a huge rift in the conference on it. If possible, that's going to be very tricky for him to manage. Um, I think, but I think he's very important, and I think it's very important. Honestly, if there are major Republican donors or influencers listening, listening to this, they need to. McCarthy is very important to say to him, look, do what you want, make all the accommodations with Trump. Maybe people like me don't like it all. A vote on domestic policy, whatever you want, start an investigation of Hunter Biden or the 15th investigation of Hunter Biden. But you cannot, this is serious. I mean, you cannot sell out Ukraine because you've got a bunch of yahoos in your conference who don't know a thing about it and don't care about it, honestly. They just want to defeat Biden on every front. You know, it's that's not, they're not, I mean, I, I feel bad almost when we call them McGovernites. McGovern had a view of the world and of foreign policy, which he cared about. It wasn't what we agreed with. These people don't have a view of anything except, you know, that Biden's doing it. So we're against it. And plus, it's an easy thing. It's a demagogue I think McCarthy's very important. I think Stefanik is very important. She's been a huge disappointment the last uh, seven years really well. You know, you know, five years, I guess, certainly since 2018. Uh, totally gone uh, in the in the tank for Trump uh, uh, in, in a pretty bad way, I've got to say. But she's been pretty good on Ukraine. And I think she does the... You know, she worked with us years ago on some foreign policy stuff and maybe some of that she still believes it or or whatever reason. So I don't think she's still stuck her neck out there that, that way, but I think it would be damaging if she went in a Trumpy direction and started to really uh come out against the aid package. So I think keeping Stefanic kind of at least neutral and, and and non not leading the opposition is is important practically. And then there are other members who were influential, in different, you know, obviously among different parts of the conference and different regions and so forth. It is a, But I don't think this is one where, I think this is one where McCarthy, Scalise, and Stefanik want it to happen. They may not stick their necks out. They may give people a lot of votes to make them feel better and make them look better, or they don't approve of this. And we need to have much more auditing of the aid here, and we have to do this, and time. But I think basically, uh, if they want it to happen, I think it will happen.
0: You know, one of the things that's struck me about this has been the voices that are absent. Um, you know, and and you know what I think represents a a real sad set of of changes in the Republican Party. One, of course, is John McCain, and and you know we're right around the anniversary of his passing. Um, so, you know, about five years ago. I think you can really see how much this debate misses his voice. There are other voices, though, that, you know, that are missing, you know, Ben Sass, for instance, you know, at one time, you could have counted on to, you know, make this case. Uh, Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney, you know, and uh, so a lot of those voices are just not there. And, you know, you get the sense that, you know, Mitt Romney is maybe thinking about not running again, he's certainly, you know, not out there banging a drum to raise a lot of money he's going to have a primary I can you know at his age imagine him and I, I wouldn't you know at all begrudge it to him say at my you know you know age and station in life I don't really need this anymore you know but it does it does worry you that you know a lot of voices that one would hope would be in this debate are just for a variety of reasons now not not there anymore you know, one thing you hear from some of McConnell's people, I'm really interested in your view of this, is that they really would like Biden to really make the case publicly for aid to Ukraine in a way that he hasn't done. I mean, you know, he's he's made comments, you know, to reporters at gaggles coming on or off Air Force One or, you know, when he's on a bicycle ride in Delaware, but there's been no kind of concerted. Speech to the nation about what you were saying earlier. This is a really important point in time. Uh, you know, to some degree, the future character of international relations can be set by how this conflict comes out. Here's why we have to do it, and we can't be partisan about it. You know, I know we've got Republicans and Democrats who both want to do this, and Republicans and Democrats who are opposed to it. So it's not a partisan issue. You know, you, you could, you know, I think, imagine that that. It could be a very powerful speech if he if he gave it. On the other hand, I've had some people argue to me, "Well, you know, things are so polarized that if he makes a speech, it'll just drive, you know, some Republicans crazy and maybe get them not to vote for it." Where do you come down? I mean, my view is just fundamental presidential leadership. He needs to make that speech.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm inclined to be where you are, and I do think at some point we, uh, yeah, pay a price for not having that speech or set of speeches made or. Uh, by him or by other very senior people or op-eds written by jointly by former presidents, you know, Bush and Obama and whatever. And now the rationale against, whether it's the Bush-Obama type thing or against the Biden speeches is we're so, well, in the case of Biden's speeches, we're so polarized that it's better, honestly, if we can just get this through with bipartisan votes without making it Biden's war, but it's America's war or America's effort to help Ukraine instead of Biden's effort to help Ukraine. And I, that's good. And I I take that point. I mean, that's just, you know, if it's better to make it uh, America's effort and uh, having Biden be way out front uh, is a problem, uh, fine. But but then other people need to step up and make the case. And I think some of us have tried. But so I think that's a reasonable point of view. But then I do think there there needs to be someone making the case. And that gets to the other set of people, which would be your former secretaries of state, former presidents or current ones or recent ones or people who don't agree on anything the aforementioned Mike Pompeo, along with, I don't know, one of uh, Obama's uh, President Obama's secretaries of state or so forth. Not Hillary Clinton, that would be a bridge too far, but, um, you know, and uh, uh, or national security advisors and so forth. And that there hasn't really been. And I, I don't think that probably doesn't happen spontaneously. Uh, Unless the administration does it behind the scenes. And we, you know, you would I remember the Cold War days and even when I was in the White House there and, and, and with Quayle in 89 to 93, we did stuff with Democrats that didn't have George H.W. Bush's or Dan Quayle's name on it, obviously. It was a joint, joint op-ed by, you know, uh, I don't know, then Representative Les Aspen and there were Steve Solars for, as, for the Democrats or then congressman, whoever the kind of equivalent respectable Republicans were, I can't remember anymore for the Republicans, but we helped them do it and we helped provide information and we helped, you know, push for it and so forth. These things tend to happen with executive branch uh, energy behind them. And I don't know, maybe the Biden administration is doing this, I really assume they're doing some of it, but I generally feel there's been a slight failure of, uh, yeah, a sense that we they need to keep the country really on board on this and not just assume that uh, Putin's doing their work for them. Putin is doing a fair amount of their work for them, to be honest. I mean, Putin has been such a horrible, I mean, he's such a cartoon villain. It's not a cartoon if you live in Ukraine, obviously, or in Russia itself. And, um, you know, in a way, it, it's made made it easier than it used to be to maybe rally people. Uh, but uh, again, it, it does need to be a little more of an articulation. And certainly going into to, to, to 2024. And certainly it's Donald Trump's the Republican nominee because he's going to make the case the other way. And and it wouldn't hurt for Biden to kind of prepare, lay the groundwork to make that harder for Trump to do six months from now.
0: Do you think of something maybe that President Bush and uh, President Clinton might be able to do jointly? I mean, they've done a whole bunch of stuff on disaster relief, you know, around the world at different times. But what what about something as fundamental as this? I mean, it seems to me if the two of them would make some appearances, you know, supporting this, it might have a positive effect
1: yeah i think so Now, i think among republicans maybe you know uh just George w bush being a nice guy with clinton again and stuff maybe there it's better to have more of a you know recent republican secretaries to say maybe that is more of a mcmaster pompeo you know uh john bolton uh mark esper uh, right, now yeah esper's the been very good yeah, the real Trumpists have problems with all those people because they didn't go along with January 6th. So they didn't go along with the worst excesses of Trump. But but um, nonetheless, they have some personal connection with people on the Hill and credibility and they did serve for, with Trump and so forth. And uh, they're not, you know, associated with the Bush administration, the war in Iraq and all those terrible things. So I, I or not as much. So I think. Um, uh, yeah, I'd be for any mix, any versions. There are many ways to mix and, and match these different leaders. But I do think having more of that happen, I think McConnell's tried to do some, but and maybe he can make some stuff happen here in September. But you know, having people who are not, yeah, having just the case being made. I also think, and you and I talked about this, uh, not on this podcast, but in other places. You know, I was very struck when I was in Europe, more in the, when was that? So that was in the uh, late spring, early summer. Um, with Jeff Gedman, they, uh, they're very good people in Europe uh, who really are terrific leaders. A lot of them young, a lot of them from the Nordic uh, countries. You know those people very well in the uh, check The new Czech president, who's not quite as young, but who, who's very impressive, uh, just won an election, defeated a kind of Trumpy-like incumbent. And uh, he's center-right. Some of the others are more center-left. I don't think the administration done a very good job of bringing them over and highlighting them and taking the a bit of the steam out of the typical Republican talking point of "oh, the Europeans aren't doing anything," hey, it's not really quite true this time. There's I mean, there's some legitimate complaints about the Europeans, but it's not true. And again, people just have the sense that Europe is is Germany and France, and we do have legitimate beasts to some degree with with those two, I suppose, more France maybe. But um, but in general, I just I don't think the Biden administration has done particularly well. They haven't been. Terrible, but they just haven't done particularly well in sort of thinking of the public diplomacy side of this whole effort here at home and and how, again, Europe could not just be a sort of a burden that they have to kind of defend, you know, or take say it's good that the alliance is strong, but to really make a big deal, Sweden and Finland, you know an infinite amount about this, having been ambassador to Finland, are in NATO. And that's an achievement and it's a testimony to them and it's a testimony, sadly, to, to Putin, but a testimony to Ukraine to fight so well. Zelensky has done a lot of good public diplomacy on this uh, personally, but I just feel there's a lot more they could do to make clear to some of those voters. I mean, the American public to its credit, has sort of gotten this anyway, so far, these Republican voters uh, for Ukraine have kind of uh, gotten it so far, but there's probably more that could be done to make clear how big a deal this is and how important it is for the U S to stand firm.
0: I agree. And your comments, Bill, I think, highlight the degree to which I think the administration to, to, you know, in in some ways has uh, seemed to under play and underestimate the information space in, in which this conflict is, is playing out. You know, last week there was this whole spate end of, you know, last weekend and the uh, middle of last week, There was this whole spate of stories that appeared in the Financial Times, New York Times, the Washington Post, which basically highlighted uh, disagreements that the U.S. Department of Defense uh, has had with Ukrainian strategy and the counteroffensive isn't moving fast enough and they're not making enough use of the equipment and they're using too much artillery and this and that and the other thing. And Frank Miller and I published a piece on Friday in the Bulwark and yesterday Jack Keene our friend uh, had a piece uh, in a similar vein, uh, basically saying, look, none of these uh, military critics in the United States has ever had to fight the kind of fight that the Ukrainians are in. Some of the things that people have been advocating are just silly. I mean, you know, uh, David Ignatius had a column the other day in which uh, he was quoting someone as saying, well, you know, the, the Ukrainians are putting uh, too much effort into using um, UAVs for reconnaissance. They ought to have dismounted people doing reconnaissance. I, mean, I, I think some of those people ought to volunteer and go over to be part of those human terrain reconnaissance teams, walking into some of the most heavily landmined, you know, territory in the world. Uh, you know, it's it's just this kind of you know armchair quarterbacking that you know not only is it sort of offensive, I think, to the Ukrainians. So you could see some very acerbic responses from various Ukrainians. But it it seems to me that the whole thing was undercutting their own case for the supplemental on the Hill and with the public at large, you know, is making it seem like the Ukrainians are just, uh, you know, headed towards a stalemate. It's going to be an endless war. I mean, we, we may be headed towards a stalemate, but why would you be saying that at this, you know, at this point when it's still relatively early, you know, in the, Conflict and any number of people have made the analogy to how long it took us to break out of Normandy after the D-Day invasion. You know, the, these are you know tough fights, as as Chairman Milley has said. This can be a tough fight, but they they seem to be kind of oblivious to the you know to the information side of this, both here at home and you know internationally. I mean, Jake Sullivan ultimately had to come out and say, "No, we don't think it's you know a stalemate right now," etc. But Am I the only one who thinks they're a little bit clueless in Gaza when it comes to to the information space? no, I think you're I think that
1: you're you're right and some of i mean what's particularly annoying obviously is when their administration officials quoted on background saying this stuff, obviously they can't control what think tanks say and so forth and and and, and others and and so some of that's inevitable obviously but they but they also even if some character from some think tank says something uh they could Push back. Now they can sometimes get others outside government to push back and and, and and rebut some pieces. But in general, one doesn't one does one has the impression they think, look, the war is the war. They're probably working very hard on it. They're making decisions. Not all of them. Uh, I think they could do a little more in a couple of areas. But uh, and um, but they don't. I don't know. I mean, this is an honest question. I really don't know who's in charge of the public policy side of this. I mean, is there an actual human being at the NSC or state? Uh, who gets up every morning and says, okay, what arguments are unfortunately making a little too much headway out there in social media or in op-ed pages or in Europe for that matter, and that we need to beat back, and who can we beat back, and if it's not, you know, Jake Sullivan giving a talk, it can be, you know, getting 10 people into the White House to brief them and give them a good, high-quality, you know, unclassified briefing of what's happening in the war, and then making sure they, you know, helping them get their Get the case out. Of. In general, I just feel like there's been a little less of that. I mean, I'm closer to the Biden administration than I was to the Obama administration. I'm really not making this. God knows what I me, and I don't, you know, need an invitation anywhere. But uh, when we supported, when I supported President Obama's uh, Afghan surge, I guess it was or maybe it was Libya intervention. Or I think it was Libya, maybe not the most, not the one that stood up the best, but whatever. In 2011, at the height of the Arab Spring. Uh, they had about 15 of us into the White House, and we were people who've been very critical of President Obama and strong McCain supporters and people associated with the Iraq War, which President Obama wasn't a big fan of. So it was a little bit, you know, fraught, you might say, at the meeting in the in the reservoir room. But they said, look, we, we're in this, you know, you guys are supporting, we're on the same page, mostly on this, and we need to hear the arguments. And if you need any information, here's the right person to, you know, to email at the NSC. And it was all Totally, stuff that you and I have done a million times. regardless guys, what government does, and, and what the other side would, does too. In fact, they call them their friendly people and so forth. But I, it's just funny that that's been. More, I felt like there was more of that there, and certainly more of in the Clinton administration. Even as Clinton was getting impeached, you know, Sandy Berger was having people in, and 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 we were agreeing that we had to, you know, help in the Balkans and support the effort in Kosovo and so forth. Um, and I don't. I, I look. I'm happy to say it, regardless of whether I'm in the White House, obviously, and you are too. But but I do feel like there's been a little bit of a ball being dropped here in terms of doing that. And also, then across the Atlantic, I mean, there could be everyone I talked to in Europe, they're grateful for what the Biden administration's done. They're, they're supportive. They're, they're doing their own thing there. They don't need to be told what to say. They're, they know in, in the Czech Republic or in Finland or in Lithuania what the arguments are, believe me. But I don't get the impression they're in close contact, especially, or that they're coordinating the arguments. It's, especially when there's a NATO summit then there's kind of a moment of a, two weeks of frantic activity to make sure everything is everyone's more or less on the same page. But so I do think on the public, the global side, they could, they could do more. I mean, I think to be fair, the Biden administration's allies in other policy areas would say the same thing, you know, that, you know, he's, he's got pretty good economic performance here after a pandemic and everything else, inflation's coming down and like, who's making that case, you know, I mean, they, they've invented a pretty serious banking crisis, Pretty effectively, I've got to say, is my sense, and I've talked to a couple of economists who say this. And, you know, I don't know, does anyone give Biden administration Janet Yellen credit for the fact that it looked like we might have a major bank run and we haven't? And in fact, you know, the situation is pretty stable and no one even remembers quite what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and First National. It's an administration that's not very good at the making its own case side of things. And they've kind of gotten away with it on Ukraine so far, as I say, because Zelensky is so admirable and the Ukrainians are so admirable and Putin's so horrible. But I, I wish we could, I think we need a little more effort here in the next couple of months and then in the next year.
0: You know, you mentioned the Europeans. One of the things that you know I hear from European colleagues, um, and it's begun to pop up a bit in the U.S. press as well, is their concern about what's going on in the things we've been talking about the republican debate the potential for trump to be the nominee again and you know the the non trivial possibility that he could actually you know win the election in in 24 and then you know what happens to ukraine policy you know then it's interesting in that context that you now start just in the last few days have started to see reports about europeans looking to try and make long term commitments to the Ukrainians and get a lot, you know, kind of center of gravity inside NATO among European countries to make long-term commitments to Ukraine, so that Putin can't just count on, you know, playing, you know, running, running the, you know, running things out until the U.S. election in the hope that Trump, you know, wins and then, you know, sort of saves him from the kind of, you know, morass he's gotten himself into.
1: I mean, the degree to which, just on that, I know we have to go in a minute. I mean, the degree to which Trump, Putin's strategy is hang on until Trump might win, is understated. And we all probably need to say that more often. This is not like an—it's like Putin's fighting a war, and one of the 15 things that could happen, this one would be something good for him, would be that Trump might win in 2020, get nominated first and then win in 2020. That's like the number one thing that would be good for him. And it's the one number one thing he's counting on. And I think he's going to desperately hang on until uh, it's clear that Trump won't win or hasn't won in in november 24 uh that's his best way out of this and incidentally what it says about the possibility i was talking to someone yesterday who was very involved in some of the stuff in 2016 on russian disinformation what it's when this much is at stake for what for putin i mean it it can make 2016 look like nothing in terms of russian disinformation and russian meddling in the election and you know i mean i I, because his own regime maybe his own rule may be at stake almost on our election so what does he do we see what he does in with with domestic opponents and in europe and elsewhere uh we saw what he did in 2016. i mean this is much more uh, existential crisis for putin so but again i think focusing a little more people's attention on the fact that it's not just trump 2024 is sort of an accidental sidebar story it's really crucial in terms of the actual fate of ukraine and certainly in terms of putin's strategy
0: yeah no i i agree with that now of course. The one of the major instruments Putin used to interfere in the 2016 election was the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, several of whose employees were indicted by by Bob Mueller as a result of the Mueller investigation. That property seems to be like, you know, up for up for grabs now among the various retainers uh, around around Putin uh, with the, you know, the death uh, this past week of Evgeny Prigozhin not clear whether, you know, that instrument will be used or whether there'll be others, but he's got others like the GRU that he can use as well. So he's got a bunch of arrows in his quiver to interfere in our election. And I'm, I'm sure he will be doing that. I mean, CNN had a story recently about how the Russians are trying to infiltrate, you know, Russian talking points into Western, what what used to be called useful idiots. I think actually Mona Charan wrote an excellent book some years ago about that needs to be, I've, joke with Mona that it needs to be updated. You know, um, I, I've also said that I thought Vivek Ramaswamy is actually a new category, which is useless idiot. But that's a that's another story. You know, I've been very critical of the Biden administration, as has Elliot on this podcast, for being very slow to get certain uh, systems to the Ukrainians, for being dragged in the wake of the Europeans on multiple occasions for getting things to them. I, I, I do want to say, I you know, i Got the sense from talking to some people inside the Biden administration in the last week, they may be very close uh, to uh, making a positive decision to give the Ukrainians the M26 rocket-launched cluster munition, which would be launched from HIMARS, which would extend the the range of the cluster munitions, which the ones that they've already gotten uh, have had a, a huge effect on the battlefield already in in helping. Uh, the Ukrainians push through Russian defenses. Some of that has been visible um, uh, in, in the area around Robotinia, where where the um, Ukrainians have uh, made a, a bit of a minor breakthrough through the first line of defense uh, in recent days. Um, Attackums, you know, I think, which is the next big thing, is still, you know, sort of uh, up in the air. I mean, I, I'm sort of reminded, I'm, I wonder if you agree bill of churchill's comment you know the biden administration is like his description of the united states of america it sort of ultimately does the right thing after systematically eliminating every other option
1: yeah i mean no i
0: think gets
1: well well said by churchill and, and <laughs> well applied well applied by you i mean a little unfair maybe but but i think certainly the some of these weapon systems they just didn't do and now they're doing and there was no price it turns out there was no reason not to have done it three or six and nine months before and a lot of you know unfortunately lives were lost and and time was squandered in not being able to do things it does seem like now with the seeming beginnings of breakthrough in a couple of places in the lines which certainly be the time to to get both the i guess the cluster munitions that can be launched at a greater distance that you were describing and then the attack which everyone says would be very important for uh for this offensive as well and I mean, they really need to go for it here. I mean, they, they've all the arguments about red lines and stuff seem not to be true. And, um, I, I just can't see that we have a lot of the stuff sitting around some of the stuff we should have resupplied much. We we should have built much more of over the last year and gotten our defense industrial base going again, as you've made this argument repeatedly, but in the particular things, if I'm not mistaken, that we're talking about, they have, we have a lot of it. And, and, uh, And the big joke, uh, you've made this comment, I think uh, others have, Fred Kagan and many others. I mean, what's kind of crazy about the reluctance to do it is, why do we get all these weapons? We got all those weapons because in the unlikely event, but possible event, that there'd be a huge ground war in Europe. That's what these weapons are for. They're not really very useful, most of them in the Middle East, I don't think. And uh, they're not, uh, well, in Asia, I don't think we're going to be fighting a ground war with high marses, You know, I I mean, maybe we will, but it doesn't sound like that's terribly likely. So. these are for the unlikely event of fighting a big land war in Europe. We're fighting the largest land war in Europe in eighty years. I mean, they're fighting it. Yeah, thank God we're not the European Ukrainians are fighting it. What are yeah. we saving these for? No, absolutely. I mean we're going to have them in some garage, you know, in some in some hangar. In well, some they're going
0: to sell forty attackums. They're going to they're going to sell forty attackums to Morocco. So yeah, there you go. I mean, no, it's crazy. I, and it gives away one of the best talking points that they have to push back on this America first, you know, send the money to Hawaii, you know, et cetera, instead of Ukraine, you know, for essentially 3%, and this is something Lindsey Graham actually said after coming out of Ukraine recently, for 3% of the defense budget of the United States, which what what we've spent so far on this effort, we've destroyed 50% of Russia's combat power according to the British chief of defence testifying in front of the house of commons defence committee that's the greatest bargain you know since lend-lease yeah no i know then and, and yeah and also if
1: people say well we're you wasting all this money in defense they buy all these weapons you'd ever use obviously it's not a reason to use them that people are to prove that you're you know need to have a high defense budget but this is the moment this is exactly what these weapons are designed for this kind of land conflict hopefully it's not going to happen too many times you know in, in in our lifetime or even after our lifetime you know these things thank god these wars don't happen every three years at this scale now it's happening at scale. And I think this is where the Biden administration, they sort of understand, I mean, of course, they kind of understand that they're not fools and they're doing a lot of good things. And uh, the, the, they're coming to grips with it. But I, I just feel they haven't quite internalized sort of that this is not like your typical, we do this here, move this chess piece over here. We've got to be a little careful. But this this is really at a different level and and requires almost a different kind of, kind of thinking than the normal uh, you know, diplomatic and political military efforts that, that we've all engaged in a government and that they're engaging in and, and which are good. But but this is a little different.
0: I agree. As Elliot has said, they think they can titrate out this stuff and calibrate this. And I'm, you know, I, I just don't think, you know, war operates on that kind of a, you know, kind of a timetable. Our guest today has been Bill Kristol. Bill, thank you for joining us on uh, Shield of the Republic. It's been great uh, great having you. Best of luck to you and Sarah in the efforts for Republicans for for Ukraine. I, I encourage uh, our listeners to think about uh, doing one of the uh, ads for, for you all. Um, I think that would be a great contribution to this, uh, this debate. And uh, we'll have to have you back um, in a couple of months to take the temperature and see how we're doing after the Reagan library debate. We'll see how much of the spirit of Ronald Reagan is still alive in the contemporary GOP.
1: Well let's let's hope it's alive and let's hope that after like that's September twenty-seventh and then September thirtieth would be the usual time the CR would get passed. So let's hope that we're in a cheerful mood and we can do it again in October or November. Thanks, Eric. It's been great as always talking with you.